And they're all on the church website as well. Exodus chapter 5. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us and pest with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you'd have them cease from their labors? So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you're no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose upon them. And you are not to reduce any of it because they're lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men. Let them work at it so that they'll pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And were asked, why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, or in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten. But it's the fault of your own people. But he said, You're lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work. For you'll be, you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them, and they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you've made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his his uh, land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, The sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then what follows is a genealogy that establishes uh, who Aaron and Moses were, which I'm not going to read for sake of time. And then jumping down to verse 28. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? subject today is uh, serving the Lord, and I have found over the years that many people jump into serving the Lord with great enthusiasm and thinking, it's going to be great, the Lord is going to bless me, life is going to be sweet, because after all, you know, I'm, I'm now seeking first God's kingdom. And uh, I'm doing His work. Won't the Lord bless those who do His work? That depends entirely on how you define blessing. Uh, If you define blessing as hardship and sleepless nights and daily pressure, weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions and other difficulties, yes, you'll be blessed because I just got that list out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12 where Paul describes his own life as he served the Lord. But if you define blessing as everyone just loving what you're doing and just praising you all the time and uh, nobody ever criticizes you and everything is just going wonderfully in life and in ministry, then my question to you would be, have you ever read the Bible? And, you know, do you really understand what you're getting into? You've probably never read church history either because 
if it were that way in serving the Lord, there would be no such thing as persecution. There would be no Christian martyrs. But clearly there are. And so we need to understand that when you begin to serve the Lord, you just join the infantry. And as you know, that's a dangerous place to be. You're on the front lines. Uh, There is one called the Prince of Darkness who's now gunning for you. And often things don't become easier or smoother in your life. Things become more difficult. And Moses very quickly learned that lesson when the Lord called him to go back to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let the Israelite slaves go three days' journey into the wilderness so that they might sacrifice to the Lord. Now, scholars debate why three days' journey when the real objective was to say, bye, we're leaving, totally. Um, Even some liberal scholars accuse God of being dishonest or deceptive, in which case he's not God, of course. Uh, But that's their issue. I think probably the answer is this was an initial test that exposed Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Um, Moses is asking a reasonable request. Let us go out three days in the wilderness and uh, worship the Lord our God. And there were precedents in Egyptian history for such requests. A manuscript and a limestone tablet that date from the time of the ancient pharaohs indicates that sometimes Egyptian slaves were given permission, time off, to go worship their gods. And so when Pharaoh refused to do this simple request, coupled with his harsh command to increase their workload, it's just exposing Pharaoh's hard heart. Um, Of course, his priority was to keep the Egyptian economy moving, Uh, not to listen to a bunch of slaves who worship some god that Pharaoh acknowledges he doesn't know or believe in. And so when Moses then began to obey God's call to serve him, things didn't get better. In fact, they got much worse, both for him and the people he was trying to serve. Pharaoh demands that the Hebrew slaves now gather their own straw to make bricks. He keeps the quota the same. He orders the Hebrew foremen now to be beaten when they don't meet their quotas. And the Israelite leaders who at first had, we saw in the end of chapter 4, they had believed that God had sent Moses, that God now had listened to their um, difficult plight, And they had worshipped God together and had a wonderful time together. But now they angrily turn against Moses for making the uh, Israelites odious in Pharaoh's sight. So clearly the plan wasn't working as Moses had envisioned it working. And maybe you've experienced a similar thing when you began to serve the Lord. Um. The lesson here for us is, though, that because the Lord is the Lord, and because he's faithful to his covenant promises, serve him faithfully, even in the face of opposition and setbacks, and you will have those. 
You know, you think about it. God could have taken Pharaoh out with a heart attack. Bingo, he's gone. Get somebody more friendly in there. Uh, Instead, God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart and then use Moses to perform the miraculous plagues in order to display God's power and God's glory more brightly. He says that in Exodus 9.16 and in Romans 9.17. And these chapters and the ones that follow show the strength of opposition that Israel is up against. Um, Those who do not know God are opposed to Him. They are hard-hearted and often cruel towards His people. And when you go into battle, one of the first things you need to understand is the strength of the enemy. And so they learned that. Um, At the same time, though, even his chosen people can fall into complaining and faithlessness, as our chapters here show. And even Moses, who is chosen by God to lead them out, reveals his lack of faith at this point, and he needs to grow. So he questions why God sent him. He complains that God hasn't delivered his people at all. And um, he repeats his excuse about being unskilled in speech that he gave when God first called him to this task. And so the point, I think, clearly is if God is going to deliver his people, God has to be the one who does it because his people are complaining and griping and not trusting God. Even Moses is not that strong at this point. Uh, In other words, salvation is of the Lord. And that's an important and vital lesson to learn when you begin to serve the Lord. All of these lessons are. You have to recognize we are up against the Prince of Darkness Grim, as Luther's hymn that we sang this week uh, declares, the mighty fortress is our God. So you have to recognize the strength of the enemy You have to recognize the helpless and desperate condition of the people you're serving. And frankly, you have to recognize your own weakness and inability as you serve the Lord. Because if you think you can pull it off with your gifts or your charisma or your knowledge that you picked up in some Bible course or something, you're trusting in the wrong thing. You have to go into it going, you know, I cannot do this, Lord. You've got to do it. So the first thing we learn here is then serve the Lord faithfully even in the face of opposition and setbacks. And you have to understand again, if you remember last week, Moses and Aaron are coming off of a spiritual high. They they had gone to the Israelite leaders. They accepted their testimony. They believed that the Lord had um, heard their cry and was concerned about their affliction And they all worshipped the Lord, and it was probably just a glorious situation. And so Moses and Aaron, I think, probably forgot what the Lord had said, you know, in the fine print. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So they go charging into Pharaoh, all pumped up with what uh, they had just encountered with the Israelite leaders. And they hit a brick wall. Pharaoh wasn't budging. In fact, Pharaoh was going to come on even stronger. And um, 
things weren't going to work quite as smoothly as Moses and Aaron thought as Pharaoh made things more difficult. Has that ever happened to you when you begin to serve the Lord? You know, you thought you were doing God's work, and boy, here we go, you know, and you just get slammed. When, when Marla and I moved to Dallas so that I could finish my seminary degree, uh, first of all, we had a very hard time finding an apartment. It was in January, and everything seemed to be taken, and we finally found an apartment we could afford, and we moved in just before classes started. And then three days later, as we were coming from our carport into our apartment, we were mugged at gunpoint, and I ripped my hand open on the gun side of the guy's gun, had to get four stitches, and uh, that was rather traumatic, of course. And uh, then a couple of weeks later, I was walking to my car, and I was carrying a thermos, the old glass kind of thermos jugs that we used to have, and I slipped on the mud and ripped my finger really bad. So I'm starting classes with both hands bandaged. We're living in an apartment that I'm not sure is really a safe place to live. Uh, and at such times, you begin to wonder, did I miss an off-ramp back there I was supposed to have taken? And what am I doing here? Am I really where the Lord wants me to be at this point in life? Uh, but we need, we should not assume that encountering difficulties in pursuing serving the Lord means you're not in God's will because often God uses those very difficulties to bring us to the end of ourselves and we recognize that we have to trust Him. He is our strength. Uh, Chuck Swindoll observes the best framework For the Lord God to do his most ideal work is when things are absolutely impossible and we feel totally unqualified to handle it. Three lessons here under this heading. First of all, when you serve the Lord, you will face opposition both from without and from within. Moses' first opposition comes from without, scoffing Pharaoh. Uh, We don't know how Moses and Aaron managed even to get an interview with Pharaoh. I mean, it's probably, maybe it wasn't quite as complicated as getting in to see the president. But at any rate, the meeting did not go well. Uh, You can certainly understand from his perspective why he doesn't want to let two million slaves go. They were the backbone of cheap labor that fueled the Egyptian economy. And... um, Yet, at the same time, as I just explained, I think God gave Pharaoh, uh, graciously gave Pharaoh, an easier request at first. Just let him go three days into the wilderness and worship and then return. And Pharaoh's brazen replies in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides... I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh is not impressed at all with this uh, God whom Moses identifies as the Lord God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. He probably scoffed to his aides, hey, some God that is. He lets his people be in slavery to us for hundreds of years, and now I'm supposed to add him to our pantheon? Uh, You know, he's obviously a paltry second-rate God, 
uh, look at how our gods have prospered Egypt. You know, we have the pyramids, we have the Sphinx, we have all of these wonderful monuments, and we are one of the most powerful uh, nations on the face of the earth. So why do we need this Hebrew God or obey a God like that? And you know, even today, when you present Christ crucified, there are skeptics who say, huh? <laughs> why would God let his son be crucified? We don't need that kind of a God. In fact, even one supposedly Christian leader in the emergent church movement said that God's putting his son on the cross is cosmic child abuse. That was his term. Cosmic child abuse. So the cross is always under attack as God's only means of salvation. If we can do it by our good works, you know, if we can dodge the cross, that's offense. Because the cross says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And that's kind of offensive to people, isn't it? But it's God's only way. Now, Pharaoh's question here, though, is the crucial question that every person on this planet needs to answer. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It reminds me of when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say uh, uh, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks what I call the crucial question, but who do you say that I am? That is the most important question for any person to ask, answer. Who do you say that I am? And... <clears throat> Peter responds with his well-known confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus quickly makes it clear, you're right, but you didn't come up with that answer, Peter. It came to you from God. He revealed it. But you know, everything in this life and everything in eternity depends on a person getting that question right. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is, because if he is the Lord God in human flesh, then the only result or consequence is, I need to bow my knee before him. Now, when you encounter opposition from outside of the faith, <clears throat> try to keep the conversation coming back to that crucial question. Yeah, 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 I know you believe in evolution, but who do you say Jesus is? Yeah, yeah, I know you're worried about all the heathen who have never heard about the gospel. But who do you say that Jesus is? You see, you need to bring that person face to face with the divine human person of Jesus Christ. And uh, invariably, a skeptic is going to bring up all these objections. Again, as Pharaoh could have objected and said, who, who does he think this God is? <laughs> the God of a bunch of slaves? What kind of God is that? 
And rather than get in debates about all the objections, and I do have two sermons, by the way, on the website where I give you basic answers to... There's only about a dozen objections people raise, and I deal with those. You can look those up. Um, But almost always the underlying reason a person rejects Jesus is he is hostile toward Jesus Christ, And it's not an intellectual hostility, it's a moral hostility because he realizes if Jesus is truly Lord God, I'm in deep doo-doo because I got a lot of sin and frankly, I love my sin. That's the issue. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and so you have to bring them face to face with Jesus Christ and say, who do you say that he is? That is the crucial question. Now, Pharaoh, in this case, he doesn't want to obey the Lord. He's living a good life. You know, got his harem, got his power. Uh, Everything's going wonderfully in Egypt. And who is the Lord that I should obey him, he asks. But it's a moral reason. And eventually, Moses has to warn Pharaoh of the consequences if he doesn't obey the Lord. And sometimes, gently, we need to warn skeptics, you know. You're rejecting Jesus now, but one day every knee shall bow. He is Lord. And if you don't find out now, you're going to be in big, big trouble when he comes back in power and glory. So Moses' first opposition, and sometimes yours, will be with those who are without. But also, Moses faced opposition from within. When Pharaoh increases the workload on the Hebrew slaves, their foreman complained, and uh, they found Pharaoh unsympathetic. He accused him just in the people of laziness. And then when they leave the encounter with Pharaoh, they meet Moses and Aaron. And in verse 21, they angrily say, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now at this point, you'll note that the Hebrew leaders are more concerned about relieving their harsh conditions and remaining in slavery than they were about being freed from slavery. Sometimes that's true of people. They just want peace. They just want good life. Yeah, they're enslaved, but just make life go better, and they'll be happy to be enslaved. And also, they still identify themselves as Pharaoh's servants. In verse 15 and verse 16, they uh, don't see themselves as the people of God. They identify themselves as Pharaoh's servants. But in fact, they are God's people whom God had sent Moses to and Aaron to deliver, but at this point it's safe to say Moses was not their favorite uh, man of the week. But the point is this, when you serve the Lord, expect opposition not only from outside, but from within. Now, don't be quick to label your critics as tools of the devil or something like that. Um, You know, you need to listen to what they say. Uh, You you need to 
maybe change some things if their criticisms are valid. Uh, but, you know, you, you usually don't expect opposition from within. I mean, aren't we all brothers and sisters? And we're all serving the Lord? And we're all called to love one another? Wham! Somebody criticizes you. And often it comes to you through the grapevine, behind your back, you know. They don't come and say, listen, I had a problem with, with this last week, and can we talk? That would be the right way. Instead, they start gossiping behind your back, and pretty soon you hear back from others, really? That's what they're saying? Uh, and so you get into those kind of difficulties. So be prepared when you sign up to serve the Lord, you're going to get attacked. Uh, attacked from outside, attacked from inside. It happens. And uh, you need to be ready. A second lesson here is that when you serve the Lord, you're going to face setbacks that will make it seem like you're on the wrong path. After the Hebrew foreman angrily confronted Moses, he complained to the Lord in verses 22 and 23, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And then later, in chapter 6 and verse 12, when the Lord tells him to return to Pharaoh and demand that he let Israel go, Moses pessimistically replies, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. Uh, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. So he's still overwhelmed with his inability to speak. And... Uh, he says, I can't even get through to, to your people, Israel. How do you expect me to get through to this tyrant, Pharaoh? And he had forgotten the basic lesson. Moses, you're just the instrument. It's God who will deliver Israel, not you. You're just my uh, channel to do that job. And he was not remembering either that the Lord always has reasons for his delays, even if we don't know what those reasons are. Uh, the more that Pharaoh resisted the Lord through Moses' uh, appeals to let Israel go, the more it revealed God's patience, the more it vindicated God's righteous judgment when it finally fell on Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, Israel needed further humbling under Pharaoh's harsh treatment so that they would appreciate God's deliverance when it finally came uh, and know where it came from, that it came from the Lord. And then Moses himself needed to learn more about patiently waiting on the Lord and to recognize that when deliverance came, it wasn't due to him. It was due to the Lord who worked. And those are all important lessons that uh, we need to learn when we serve the Lord. The Lord is showing them to Moses in these chapters. So setbacks when you're serving the Lord don't necessarily mean I'm on the wrong path. It may mean God has some lessons, maybe for his people, maybe for me, uh, and God doesn't, isn't obligated to tell me 
why he is delaying answers to my prayers. He is God, and I am not God. So what do you do when you encounter setbacks? Well, when you face setbacks in serving the Lord, pour out your heart to him. Now, the Hebrew foreman went to Pharaoh for relief, and Pharaoh isn't going to give him relief. There's no indication they went to the Lord. They should have gone to the Lord and said, Lord, here's the situation. Uh, You know, Moses at least does the right thing. It says he returned to the Lord in verse 22 uh, and pours out his heart to him. But often it seems like prayer is our last resort. You know, we've tried this. We went to Pharaoh. That didn't work. Oh, what can we? Oh, all we can do now is pray. You know, it's our last resort. Prayer should be our first resort. Because you can do more after you pray, but you can't do more until you first pray about a situation. But, having said that, let me give a word of caution. Be careful how you approach the Lord God. Some, I'm going to call them psychobabble counselors, say, just be honest with God. Tell him how angry you are. Tell him how ticked off you are. You've got to be honest with God. And that's bad counsel. Bad, bad counsel. I agree you should be honest with God. God knows everything about you. He knows your situation. Uh, but you shouldn't do what Moses does here. He accuses the Lord of not delivering his people at all as he had promised to do. So he's saying, God, you, you haven't kept your promises. And he even says, Pharaoh is harming this people. And in the same breath, he says, God, you're harming this people. As if somehow God is being mean. And so there's a right and a wrong way that you come before the almighty Lord who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. It is always wrong to accuse him of not caring. It is always wrong to come shaking your fist in his face and saying, you're not keeping your promises. When you come to the Lord, you come humbly. Let me use an analogy. When my kids were little, if they thought I had not kept my word or kept a promise, um, I wanted them to feel free to come to me and talk to me about it, be honest with me about their situation. But their attitude was crucial. If they came accusing me, you don't care about us, you don't love us, you didn't keep our word, rah, rah, rah. Maybe they were right that I had failed because I wasn't a, a perfect father, but their attitude was unacceptable. I'd say, hold it, hold it. Let's talk about it, but you don't talk to me as your father with that defiant kind of voice. Because God put me over you, and maybe I did fail, but come and talk to me with a submissive tone of voice and we can get this cleared up. And of course, God never fails. So unlike me, that's where the analogy breaks down. God never intends evil for his people. Sometimes trials to test them, but never evil. So you come to the Lord, it's fine to complain in a submissive way. Say, Lord, I don't understand this. 
you know, I thought you had promised this and somehow I'm not getting it. Or I don't understand your delay, Lord. Fine, be honest with the Lord, but do it with a submissive heart. Um, and you fear the Lord. And you just acknowledge, Lord, I, I don't understand why you're not working as I thought you would have worked here. But don't ever come to the Lord and imply that you know better than he does how things should have gone. <laughs> I don't. I'm not the Lord. I don't have all the pieces together. The Lord knows every contingency, everything. And so you come to him and bow before him and seek his wisdom. And he may not even show you why the delays, why the problems. That's his business. But do come and pour your heart out to the Lord with the right attitude. So serve the Lord faithfully then, even in the face of oppositions and setbacks. The second major lesson here then is serve the Lord faithfully in the face of opposition and setbacks for two reasons. Because he is the Lord and because he is faithful to his gracious covenant promises. First of all, serve the Lord faithfully in the face of opposition and setbacks because he is the Lord. When the Lord replies to Moses in chapter 6, verses 2 through 8, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, occurs four times, and then another time at the end of the chapter in chapter 6, verse 29. And he's trying to make a point. He is the great I am that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He is the only living and true God, the self-existent one. He has neither beginning nor end. That's what it means when he says, I am the Lord. It also means, I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the one who makes a covenant with my people and keeps it. It means, I am the personal God. You can know me personally. Uh, and sometimes it is through our failures and setbacks that we are reminded, oh yeah, he is the Lord. And I am not the Lord. And uh, that's who he is. And we need to come to know him as the one he is. He is the only one who can do something about humanly impossible problems. He is the Lord. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And sometimes you need to let skeptics know, wait a minute, you're defying the Lord. The God who spoke this universe into existence. The eternally self-existent God. Now, the Lord here, though, makes a puzzling comment to Moses in verse six, uh, 3 of chapter 6. He says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai is the Hebrew, but my by my name, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And yet, when you go back to Genesis, Yahweh occurs all through the accounts there in his encounters with Abraham. And so, what does the Lord mean here? Well, probably he means he did not reveal himself in the fullness of who he is to those men as he had just done to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, what is your name? And he said, uh, I am is my name. 
and that's related to the Hebrew um, for Yahweh. And so the patriarchs received the promises, but they all died without seeing the fulfillment of those covenant promises. Whereas now the Lord is going to deliver Egypt, I mean Israel, from Egypt in bondage. He's going to adopt them as his special people, where he would be their God, they would be his people. And he's going to guide them into the promised land that he had promised to um, Abraham, but for 400 years that promise had not been fulfilled. Now he's going to do it. And so Philip Ryken explains, he says, this is the difference between Genesis and Exodus. Abraham, that's in Genesis, knew God as the promise maker. Moses came to know him as the promise keeper. So even when you face opposition and setbacks, don't give up because you're serving none other than the Lord. He is the Lord, the faithful covenant-keeping God. And that's the final thing here. Serve the Lord faithfully in the face of oppositions and setbacks because He is always faithful to His gracious covenant promises. Uh, John Salheimer, who... um, was a friend of mine in in college and went on to become a a renowned Hebrew scholar. But John uh, says that Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8, sketches out the argument of the whole Pentateuch. He says the die is cast for the remainder of the events narrated in the Pentateuch. And God rehearses his gracious covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says what that means for Israel in Moses' time. But in verse 9 it says, They were so overwhelmed with their difficult circumstances that they didn't even want to hear it. Now Moses had been looking at what he could not do. He could not get Pharaoh to budge. But in verse 1, God reminds him of what I will do, what God will do. And then in verses 6 through 8, look down in your text, I will occurs seven times, over and over and over, seven times God says, I will, I will, I will, to emphasize He is the covenant-keeping God. And those seven I wills cluster around three main areas. Uh, I'm going to deliver my people and redeem them from bondage. I'm going to have a personal relationship with my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I am going to give them the land. Now those three promises relate totally to what we are promised in the new covenant. We are promised redemption and release from bondage to sin uh, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We are promised a personal relationship where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's in the new covenant promise. And he promises the equivalent of the land and that is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is ours through our relationship with him. I think in light of the unbelief of Moses and the Israelite leaders at this point, 
God's seven I wills in verses 6 through 8 underscore his sovereign grace because they don't deserve what God is promising. And neither do we. It's not because we're so great, we're so faithful. Yeah, yeah, Lord, you got us, man. You're lucky you got me. I'm sure a good guy. No, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. It's dependent on God's gracious promises. I like the way Roger Ellsworth put it in his little book on Moses. He said, when the I am says, I will, there can be no room for doubt or discouragement. It's a done deal. And so that means salvation isn't dependent on our doing something for God, but rather recognizing God did something for us when he sent his son and put him on the cross. And then it wasn't because we were so brilliant and we saw it. No, God reached down and opened our blind eyes so we could see. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, God began it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, it may be that some of you here this morning have never put your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And I want to make it very clear, you cannot serve God until you know God as your Savior through Jesus Christ. That comes first. And without that, all the good works in the world, I mean, you could outdo Mother Teresa And you're going to face God in judgment someday because God does not judge us on the basis of all the good works and let us into heaven on that basis. But rather, as Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life. And that promise applies to everybody here this morning. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ and his shed blood to cover your sin, that's where you begin with God. Some of you may know Christ, but I would guess there's some of you here who know Christ, but you're not serving him. Maybe you got burned. You tried it. And it didn't go well. You caught flack. And you said, phooey, I don't need this. And you dropped out. Or maybe you just it's easy to do. Just drifted into living for this world and this world's stuff. And you're comfy. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give a little bit, you know. Uh, but you're not living to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And you can do that in whatever occupation you may be in it's not just those who are full-time and serving the lord but you lose your focus if you kind of let this world drift you into yeah let's collect all the world's junk so we have plenty of stuff that's not the point of life certainly we should provide but the point of life is to serve the lord who saved us paul told timothy 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself 
in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And as I said earlier, serving as a soldier is a kind of a dangerous job. Soldiers suffer casualties at times, but that's our calling because God has saved us. Now we are to serve our faithful, covenant-keeping God even in the face of oppositions and setbacks. He enlisted you, and now you're to make it your aim to please Him. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that if any are here and they have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to bear their sins, that you would open their eyes to see their desperate condition, their need for Him, and that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray for your children, Lord, if any are wounded because they tried to serve you and got beat up or attacked or criticized or whatever, that you would re-enlist them in your service and that we would all join together in the great cause of knowing Christ and making him known in this community and making this church be all that you want it to be. And we'll give you the praise and glory for your faithful, gracious love to us in Jesus' name. Amen.